Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the fifth series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us, and we'll explore the impact of the sexual revolution, the death of civility, the meaning of evolution, the question of why some countries succeed and others fail, and the effect of the digital world on our brains. Like pretty much everything else these days, international aid and development is controversial and highly politicised. I think you could probably place people politically, at least in the UK, simply by asking them what they think of the government's pledge to spend 0.7% of gross national income on international aid. Moreover, human beings being what they are, whether you think international aid and development works may simply be a function of what you think about it in the first place. We say, I disapprove of it because it doesn't work, but what we mean is, I think it doesn't work because I disapprove of it, and vice versa. So the obvious question is, does it work? What actually is development aid and what impact does it have? And behind all that, how and why does development happen at all? Why is it, to use the subtitle of a new book, that some countries win and others lose? That book is by Stefan Durkin, Professor of Economic Policy at the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford, and it's called Gambling on Development. Stefan, welcome to Reading Our Times. Well, thank you for having me. Early on in your book, you very helpfully draw out a spectrum of different views among professional development economists on the efficacy of aid. You've kind of got Jeffrey Sachs at one end with The End of Poverty and Ambizi Moyo at the other end with her book Dead Aid. Can you briefly describe what the range of views on aid and development are? Oh, the spectrum is basically you have economists, including Gangazitan, who would say, look, we shouldn't do this thing. It doesn't work. We have no impact with it. And usually the argument is that we distort these societies and economies and these institutions so much that we won't have any impact. On the other hand, there are the, the really eight optimists like Jeff Sachs, uh, as you mentioned, who who really has this big point of that, yes, you know, there's all kinds of things going wrong, but finance and aid will be this big catalyst for change everywhere in the developing world. You've got then the other group in between that maybe is less spectacular or extreme in their views, but then say, look, we can think here, we can do things there, small, big, we can do things. You know, you have the authors of poor economics like uh, Esther Duflo and Abjit Banerjee, also Nobel Prize winners, who basically say, well, you can tinker, we don't really know what works, but we can tinker with it. You get confident people like Paul Collier, who basically say, look, you, you can get these policy rights, you can, can do these things. What it actually means is this whole spectrum. And I think actually one of the weaknesses of all these views is that they generalize too much, that there is actually a lot of difference in the developing world as well. Do you sense there's a, a center of gravity to a people's opinion on this, or are they spread across the entire spectrum? I think there would probably be two centers of gravity. And I think one of the main things in my book is to actually say, look, there are countries where this view that we can make a difference is really the case. Now, in these places, you know, you can work with these countries 
quite well because there's an alignment of interest. And if you wanted them to make change and you provide finance, provided you don't do it from narrow geopolitical reasons from the West or from other countries, but you do it generally in trying to be supportive, you can do it. But there are these other countries. They're fundamentally, the underlying elite structures are not at all interested in development, but they have very different other objectives, usually to keep the wealth amongst the ones that control society, to actually capture the rents from anything that's going on. And in these societies, you come in supposedly wanting to offer finance and others, but actually you are potentially just locking in structures mm. that are actually not developmental. In fact, you give the elite a get-out-of-jail-free card. You know, you really let them escape the responsibility that they may have on development and growth. And so there's these two centers of gravity. And of course, there's a lot of in-between areas where maybe countries move from one to the other. But it's helpful to think about it, that there's places where aid is effective, where you can really work, but there's places where you really should be willing to question what you do. Yes, yes. This is incredibly important. And this is, as you've already focused on, on the development bargain, which is a central part of your argument. By way of getting to that, though, I want to go back to this really critical point that you make early on and you repeat throughout the book, that there is no one-size-fits-all approach. And I guess that's particularly important at the moment because people look at China, the obvious success story of the last 30 years or so, and they say, ah, that's the model for development, a strong authoritarian state taking actions in the way it has done. And you compare it with other success stories like Ethiopia and Bangladesh, which have developed without that strong authoritarian state. We're kind of drawn into China as a misleading model for development sometimes, aren't we? Yes. No, that's, that's absolutely right. You know, China succeeded in getting its stake of in development probably with a pivotal moment around 1979 with the reforms when they actually ditched ideology to some extent and became pragmatist. You know, nicely summed up with a saying that attributed to Deng Xiaoping, you know, it doesn't matter whether the cat is white or black as long as it catches mice. Now in China, by then you had already 2000 years of centralized bureaucracy, meritocratic uh, civil servants. Still, the state exams are still really tough to get in. This is, this is a state that is built up very centralized, very strong, with central taxation, all these kind of features mm. that, that recognize the state. So if you're ever going to do state-led development, I probably would pick China as a place where I probably could do it, especially in these early stages. But you go to these other places where they're not just not autocratic, although I would say Ethiopia in that period when it was successful is quite autocratic, but definitely Bangladesh wasn't at the time. It was actually a very dysfunctional state. It was built up largely with jobs as rewards for having been fought in the independence war, yes. with an ideology that was very nationalistic, but pretty naive that the state could run development at first. So they had to kind of ditch that. And in the 1980s, they went away from state-led development, much more open, allowed NGOs to flourish, and allowed private business to flourish. And that was actually quite important. So it's a very different thing. So yes. the China model, beyond the underlying deep commitment to growth and development, beyond that, it doesn't travel. Yes. It strikes me that ideology is a bit of an enemy to development here because you have the Marxist ideology that effectively trapped China up until the late 1970s. But in a different way, you had a free market ideology in the 1990s that said this is the way to develop and actually created quite a lot of havoc. Is ideology the enemy? You know, it's not necessarily the enemy in itself because ideology can serve to build up a national narrative. But to the extent that ideology is the enemy of pragmatism, 
of willingness to learn and find something that works for your society, it definitely is the enemy. It's an excellent point, and I've been thinking since writing the book more about it. You need to be able to have a narrative. Mm. And I don't mind that it can be national or that it can be identity-based or whatever, but you need to be pragmatic and be sensible and especially willing to learn. And that's something that ideology doesn't allow you to do. And that willingness to learn from your mistakes and to correct your course is one of the key elements of the development bargain, isn't it? Characterise what the development bargain actually looks like. What is it? It's helpful to think of virtually any state in the world as essentially a coalition of power between elites. Uh, Some may be directly in power, others may be on the sidelines. They may not necessarily have the political power, but it's an elite elite pack. It's all going to be quite implicit, but it's basically commitment in business, military, civil society, and of course also in politics of doing a certain way. Now you could have lots of these elite bargains. And one of the big points I try to make in the book is that if you want growth and development, it has to feature in that implicit agreement between the different parties. So I understand that a lot of states after independence, they rewarded independence fighters, they built a state up slightly Mm -hmm. clientelist, you know, rewarding the people that keep you in power. And so you have a lot of states like that. You have similarly, maybe in China, where ideology was ruling and and has these things. No, there's different states that are possible, including all the way to kleptocracies, where basically the state is an instrument of stealing from the people. Yes. Now, you need an elite bargain that actually has growth and development central in it. And it needs to reflect itself in being willing to keep a certain stability that you don't fundamentally disrupt this longer term evolution of change. Being self-aware what the state can do. So it's more than words. It's not like a prime minister committing to say, I'm going to do this, or a signing ceremony where suddenly said, we're all going to have growth now. No, no, it is actively, in a very self-aware, with a certain stability, wanting to progress and actually making development, inclusive development and growth, central parts of your progress. It's also helpful then to point out what the alternatives are, because superficially you might think, well, why wouldn't any leader be interested in growth and development? And of course, most of them will pay lip service to this. But the actual polities that they're shaping and the cultures in which they live, for whatever reason, make that very difficult. What are the alternatives to that kind of development bargain? So it's actually helpful to think back even throughout our history and go back a bit in time. You know, we we like to take for granted that in, say, European societies, that actually politicians fight elections on growth, on inclusion, on these kind of things. When we go back to the 19th century, the first part of the 19th century, that wasn't a feature. Ordinary people didn't even count very much in politics. It was a very Mm. different game. And so actually it took us well into maybe late 19th century, probably into the 20th century, that these features became central parts. In the US, it took the New Deal to actually really get a politics that actually was about growth and inclusion and the state and the politics having to play a role in that. So we take this, first of all, far too granted. So the alternatives are things like kleptocracies. We suddenly understand the lead bargains because we look at Russia, where a small group of people control the politics and where the president is in total cahoots with them and deals with them. So this is actually an elite bargain of control of a form of kleptocracy, but not entirely. There's quite a lot of clientelism going on, so where you reward people for supporting you and so on. So the alternative is quite varied. Now, in a developing country, and that's an important thing about the elites, in general in societies, the elites love the status quo. 
because they understand the status quo. They know how to play the game. They know how to pay, who to pay, what to do, and so on. So elites understand this. Now in a poor society, they may actually be worried about losing their own position yeah. once the economy starts growing and new elites emerge, because we know that through history as well. New elites emerge with development. What fascinates me about this is that the book is loaded with empirical evidence and it's technical, but it's perfectly readable. But it strikes me that at the heart of this development bargain, there's a profound moral stance here amongst elites, which is I'm going to look for the long term rather than the short term, and I'm going to take actions that may risk my position here rather than shoring it up at all costs. So there's a quite profound ethical dimension to what's going on here, isn't there? Yes. So I agree with you. And definitely in the places where we see it, the development bargain again emerging, especially when there's a strong focus on inclusion and so on, we see them risking their own position. You know, if you if you really go for widespread education of your population, not just because we need the skills in the economy, but because it's valuable, you know, you risk with these kind of emerging groups more critical reception. Having said that, you have to forgive me, I'm still an economist. We still see self-interest all the time. <laughs> and it's the kind of thing here that when you start looking at it a bit more carefully, it probably is a confluence between a genuine commitment about wanting to link for the longer term, but also a pressure that an elite tends to feel that actually either their legitimacy is undermined or that actually because of conflict, their fundamental position is actually really at risk. So if you go to Deng Xiaoping again, I don't want to make him this massive hero no. of development. I'm just old enough to remember as a teenager hearing stories about China may cease to exist. The 1970s were a period of turmoil. You yes. know, we had the Cultural Revolution, Mao's death, the Gang of Four. We had this really fundamental moments that actually were threatening the position of the party. And Deng Xiaoping was supported in the party because he had a vision of how do we can keep power. Yes. And so the vision was by keeping growth and development, we'll get more legitimacy, we can sustain power. And whenever I have Chinese students or others in the audience, they recognize this point of legitimacy. This yes. was legitimate seeking behavior. So that's self-interest, that's preserving yes. power as well. So yes. it's not beautiful grand design, I'm afraid, or predestination, but it actually is agency and people at some point gambling on progress, hoping they can keep their position, mm. but maybe in the process also doing reasonably good for society. There's a potential strong link between legitimacy and democracy. And in the light of what you've been saying, for elites to justify their legitimacy, and also for people to be able to exert the kind of pressure that might encourage elites to gamble on development, people might say, well, actually what you need, therefore, is democracy. Going back in your example 200 years ago, the franchise in the United Kingdom was tiny, so of course there was very little pressure for what we would now call this development bargain. When you massively enfranchise adults in the country, as we saw in the early 20th century, you get welfare states and you get redistributive politics. So isn't democracy right at the heart of any potential shift to a development bargain? So this is a point I get all the time in trouble with. My answer is that empirically, 
at the early stages of development, that's not what we observe. Right. And it basically is the following very simple statement that on average, in these early stages of development, autocracies and democracies seem to be performing similarly well. The main difference is that amongst the most successful countries, we find proportionally more autocracies in these early stages, right. but also amongst the least successful countries. So there's a much wider spread. So democracies, as we know, shortens horizons, makes it harder for longer term, but it has a corrective in it, as you say. So it also means empirically that you have countries like Malawi, which is probably the most peaceful country in the, in the world almost, or the definitely developing country. Nothing ever really goes totally wrong, even you know when a president gets sacked essentially for, for falsifying elections and the, and the high courts make you run the elections again. Afterwards, he just goes away and says, okay, fine, and I'm off now kind of thing. But actually, it's a democracy that doesn't deliver anything for its population, where actually there is no development for such a small, peaceful country it's remarkable that it doesn't really grow its economy, that mm. it actually doesn't get better development indicators. Mm. So it's still the case that you need that underlying commitment of the elite to want to change. And I focus on the elite, which people don't like to say, where are the people? Because actually elites are powerful. They are power and they can, they can block things. These groups can block things. And the political elite and the business elite in Malawi definitely is blocking things. Having said that, in Ghana, and there are signs of it in Kenya, the move to democracy in the mid-1990s was an essential part for the country to move to a development bargain because it brought political stability and the space to actually stop governments to go to the extreme, so a form of external accountability that actually helped them to stop to being too ideological or too wasteful of indeed too clientelist or kleptocratic. Mm -hmm. And it actually limited the ability for them to do it, creating space in society, whether it's in civil society or in business, to develop the country better. And so it works, but it doesn't necessarily work. Very interesting. It reminds me a little bit of Francis Fukuyama's arguments in his books on political order, when he made the point that for democracies to flourish, they tend to need to do so on the back of a state that has already been established as, as stable. And without that security there, they can actually be well, more problems than they solve. Yeah. Can I just ask questions about resources here? Because, of course, resources always come up in development questions. And there are two completely contradictory theories when it comes to resources. One is that countries are poor because they are poorly endowed with natural resources. And then there's the argument that countries are poor because they are richly endowed, the so-called resource curse. Comment a bit about those for me. So... It's almost by definition that countries that are poor don't really have much capital in the broad sense, whether it's human capital, physical capital, or need natural resources. So the incentives for a political elite to change are very little, because why should I change? The status quo is very comfortable. I mean, take a country like Nigeria. Mm -hmm. We probably have $400 or $500 per capita in terms of revenue from oil uh, each year four or $500, that's not that much. That would still be a very poor country. But actually, it's also not much for the elite. So it's much more attractive, rather than divided amongst 200 million people, to divide it amongst 100,000 people, because then you have about a million per capita. But that's the easy way. There's very little incentive to try to grow your economy. So the status quo is even more strong. 
But it doesn't have to be like this. You know, Indonesia had similar amounts of natural resources in the early 70s. Mm. But actually, it smartly chose to use some of its natural resources. Yeah, some of it was lining the pockets of the elites and actually quite a corrupt alt-elite controlling state-owned enterprises. But quite a bit of the resource was used to build infrastructure, attracting Japanese investment and accepting that the country would change as a result. So in the early 70s, partly to do with legitimacy crisis also for Suharto, who had come to power with the coup, you actually get the change. So there it wasn't a curse, it was actually usefully yeah. used. Indonesia is now a country that for about 50 years has grown something like 4 to 5% per year on average. Yeah. Yeah. So it's actually one of the main success stories of not purely state-led development or developmental states like in, in, in East Asia, but actually of a country that found its way of doing it. So endowments matter but it's also the composition of your endowments and then the incentives. So if it's skewed to one type of endowment, natural resources, your politics is really complicated. But if you manage to balance it as Indonesia did, you can actually start progressing. The other example you mentioned in that particular chapter about how resources can be a curse in some countries is, of course, Democratic Republic of Congo, which seems to me to have the perfect storm in terms of, and the resources are quite extraordinary, aren't they, in terms of rare earth metals and diamonds and so on and so forth. But the state is in a poor condition and there's ethnic rivalries and all these factors come in to make DRC one of the poorest and least stable countries in the world, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. In a couple of months, I'll spend some weeks there in Eastern Congo, and it will be quite desperate to see how difficult it is to actually make progress. But the interesting thing there is also is that no attempts have really been made almost since independence, and dare I say before, to actually get somehow the structures in place, mm. to actually begin to seriously, broadly develop it. It was always a story about the natural resources. And that's the only game in town. It is a desperate place and a desperate history, but also with terrible behavior of the core elite in terms of how they actually continually ruined this, this country. You mentioned history there, and I wanted specifically to ask you about history. One of the books that yours most reminded me of, and indeed you, you mentioned it several times, is James Robinson and Darren Esamoglu's Why Nations Fail, which argues that they fail or they succeed because of their institutions, things like freedom of expression, rule of law, market regulation, that kind of thing. And extractive institutions effectively kill a nation, whereas ones that invest and are stable build it up. But you also say that it's a deeply pessimistic agenda for change. Countries appear to be told to buy yourself a better history. I want to ask you what role you think history plays in this whole debate, and in particular, because it's such a live one at the moment, what role do you think past imperial history, colonialism, plays in this? So, yes, I'm glad you allude to that. And if you were to read the book Why Nations Fail, and sometimes some of the institutional economists, they have a massive point. There's just no doubt that history will matter. When I was a chief economist at DFID, it was very much pushed, including by government in the UK, are saying, oh, this is the thing we should pursue, because, of course, in that book, Britain comes out very well. It's, yes, David but, Cameron's favourite book, wasn't it? I think he said it at one point. It was indeed David Cameron's favourite book, uh, at least he told us so. And what was interesting, if you then go to some of these countries, it's a bit uncomfortable as a British official to go to President Buhari's team, where, you know, given that these institutions, and according to the evidence, are slowly shaped through history, mm. as you would tell them in Nigeria, maybe you should get yourself a better history. So that's a kind of problematic type of statement. But I 
like to refer to Lena Wanshukon, who's an economic historian at Princeton from Benin. And he gave helpfully after I wrote a book, a speech, I think, at Yale University. And he said, well, let's think about it, that 50% of present-day situation in Africa can probably be explained by, by history, by colonialism, by structures that were left. But 50% is also agency. Mm. And it's actually the actors that current and present day are acting. And because that's important, you know, Ghana and Ethiopia were countries that in recent decades, in Ethiopia, of course, now they're back in conflict, but then definitely for two decades, really emerging as much better run country development and growth taking off. But Ghana as well, and Ghana was a colony and very, very different progress than, say, Nigeria. So there is agency of those players at home. So we should never forget history. We should be willing to acknowledge it. And I'm tempted to say that, you know, Africa definitely lost a couple of decades of progress. You know, why is it behind relative to Asia at the moment in its development and its growth has definitely to some extent to do with colonial history. Yes. But it does mean today it is also the responsibility of, of present-day elites in these countries. And they can't hide behind history yes. that what they do today is shaping their own future. Recognize the past, but realize you can act and you have agency. It is an interesting comparison, isn't it? Because, of course, we do associate Africa with colonialism, but, you know, the Southeast Asia was heavily colonized, not so much by the British, but by the Dutch in particular. India was obviously a colony, and they have taken different developmental pathways to Africa. So whatever it is, it's not deterministic, is it? Yes, there's so many factors we can bring back into the, the discussion on, on colonialism. You know, the borders in Southeast Asia were well drawn before, and then colonial times then occupied them. You know, Thailand, Malaysia, Cambodia, Vietnam, they're all countries with histories of kingdoms and, and structures like that. And of course, the drawing of the borders in Africa was far more arbitrary, yes. but also we didn't quite have the pre-colonial state structures everywhere. That makes, for example, in Ethiopia quite interesting. Of course, it was never colonized beyond these six years by the Italians in a very vague and unstable way. So you, you actually get borders that were drawn. But what you do have in Ethiopia, unlike many other places, is a history of state formation and a history of centralized bureaucracy, centralized taxation, which probably helps to explain also why in Ethiopia a state-led development model, which took place between, say, 2000 and 2020, actually delivered a reasonable amount of results mm. because the civil service was definitely differently built up than, say, in, in the Malawis or the Kenyas. I was really struck by the point you make in your book that I think it was the IMF said that Ethiopia showed the strongest growth of any country in the world between 2010 and 2019, which for someone of my generation who grew up with the Michael Burke report of the famine and memory of you know an appalling Marxist regime and more or less the poorest country in the world, to see it develop that is quite extraordinary. And that leads me, I guess, to the million-dollar question I have here, which is how then, in the light of all this, if the development bargain, an elite development bargain, is the critical thing to shift countries in the right direction. How does that come about? How does the country shift from being patrimonial or kleptocratic or corrupt or whatever else it is to embracing the development bargain? So 
it uh, will not surprise you that I'll say there is uh, no one route to it. Yes. It's interesting because we haven't really mentioned more of it on Ethiopia because, you know, these days people will again identify it with conflict and, and breakdown. And it's actually quite an interesting place to see, well, how does it emerge, but also how it potentially can break down. And so the quick and maybe a little bit too simplistic answer is that a regime came to power in 1991, kicking out this Marxist regime. But it was a particular northern group, the Tigrayan, the TPLF, that took power with a coalition of people, initially didn't really find its way. But then after 2000, through to a series of crises, Prime Minister Melissa clearly a very much a strong man and a very smart guy, chose to seek legitimacy and, and convinced his partners in the elite bargain seeking legitimacy through growth and development. But the important part of it is that the coalition, the underlying political coalition, was actually quite weak. Yes. And actually the national question, you know, the, the relationships between the different ethnic groups, the Tigrayans, the Amhars, the Ormos, definitely was never settled. And actually, while you had this fast growth and where the economics really managed to do it, and indeed, I mean, between 2003 and 2020, in per capita terms, they grew by more than 7%. That's Asian growth rates. But by 2018-19, the politics and the politics of that deal broke down because mm. there were players in the elite that actually felt like they didn't get their share. Mm. So how it comes about is actually a bit of a gamble, his gamble. But how can it collapse? Is that somehow the elite can't be sustained, the bargain can't be sustained by the powerful groups? Yes, it underlies how messy the process is and also how, in a sense, we shouldn't set the bar of our expectations too high. You say towards the end, no country featured in this book can claim to have made progress in development with an unblemished record. I do yeah. think that's very important because too often in the last 20 years or so, there's been a mentality in the West where we expect countries to leapfrog to perfect developed liberal constitutional democracies in a very short space of time and that's what we should support when realistically countries don't do that do they yes exactly i mean it comes back to other things in our conversation if you think the the role of institutions you know the, the early development will happen with quite imperfect institutions but that yes. literally means political systems we may not entirely like it will mean with corruption still may be being present it may imply the rule of law not perfectly as we would like it and so on we have the habit as the west to try to actually say look we'll judge you by the criteria of us today not for example the criteria that we used ourselves to judge ourselves when we were at this stage of development and most of these countries do far better in terms of rule of law than we did actually at the time yes. at these stages of development and so we have this very strong value driven but actually it's not that they are wrong these values i'm very strongly supportive of them but it doesn't work to try to impose them. And that's yeah. another part of that even China, or whether it's the West or China has to learn, to just thinking that putting your Westminster or your Beijing model onto countries and expecting them to function like that, within these imperfections you start with, it won't happen. It will just not do. And so, you know, it's a tricky one. We expect sometimes too much, but it makes it really hard because yes. how can I morally be saying we shouldn't push for release, release of political prisoners? Of I, I don't know it, but it's actually that counterfactual that the development of countries is a messy endeavour. I want to end where you do in the book. If the answer to the overall question of whether aid and development works invariably is, well, it depends on whether there is a development bargain in place... The obvious concluding question really is then, what can aid 
and development do to catalyze, to facilitate, to enable that development bargain? The first principle here has to be humility. We are outsiders, you know, we are outsiders and I don't want to give up on trying. And in fact, a lot of, say, organizations, civil society organizations in all these countries want us to keep on being engaged. It's not as if they all want us out, but you just have to recognize that a lot of the change will have to come from inside. Mm. And that actually you want to be very carefully thinking about if you give development support, economic support, that you don't embed elites and strengthen them that actually don't necessarily want this to be a success and that you actually find the right people to work with. There are things though internationally you can do. And I want to end with one thing that actually since I wrote the book, very much more comes to the fore. A lot of the very ugly regimes in these countries, whether it's Myanmar or, or DRC, they can continue to exist because of illicit finance. Mm. And it's not as sometimes people say, oh, so much money gets lost for the developing world. I don't ever want to give more money to the Kabila regime in the DRC. And that's not the issue. It's not that it's not taxed. We call them tax havens. No, that's all very Western type of view of doing it. It's illicit because it allows for shadowy dealings in politics and mm. the side payments and the connections between business elites, sometimes international business as well, and local business elites and politics. Now, the great advantage from all the sadness and the worry that comes with the conflict in Ukraine is that at least we are a country that values the rule of law. So we've actually changing our laws because this is the only way we can get at the oligarchs in Russia. It gives us a decade now, a chance to actually go after similar oligarchs and controlling people in the politics in some of the most ugliest places. Maybe we'll end up doing far better than endlessly trying to prop up their health systems and prop up their humanitarian support, because we actually may be able to interrupt the vicious circle. That is, we come with humanitarian support, but meanwhile, the elite gets an ability to continue to procreate in its own structures. So illicit fire is an important thing. It doesn't mean you don't want to give humanitarian aid and so on. But just take your opportunities. And I think illicit finance and fighting it, that's the next decade. And actually, that's an unintended consequence of Ukraine yes. that actually can be really good for these countries. The book is called Gambling on Development, Why Some Countries Win and Others Lose. Stefan Durkin, thank you so much for speaking to Reading Our Times. Well, thank you very much for having me. Next week, I'll be speaking to Anne Hartle about her book, What Happened to Civility? The promise and failure of Montaigne's modern projects. Civility requires something more important in one's life than politics. And religion is a very good candidate for that. You've been listening to Reading Our Times from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Lizzie Harvey, Daniel Turner and Elizabeth Oldfield. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find all the episodes from the series and the previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It'll help other people find the podcast.